Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available free of charge, more than 500 episodes and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hey, everybody. How's it going? This is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I'm very pleased to have Amber Tamblin as my guest today. She is a hyphenate. She's, she does all sorts of things. You guys might know her work as an actor. You might know her poetry. You might know her political activism. Uh, or you might know her new novel. It's called Any Man. It's available from Harper Perennial. Uh, just dropped in June. And uh, she was just here. Like literally was just here. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I haven't had... Well, I've had some conversations that touch on these topics. But maybe not one that I felt was uh, quite this energizing. And interesting. And difficult. And challenging. In a good way. So... It's a good conversation. It was great to meet Amber, and she's got a very good and interesting novel out on the shelves now. The title, once again, is Any Man. So I say all of that, and then I'm trying to think of what I can tell you about my own life. All I can tell you is that I have Disneyland dread. My daughter's birthday is coming up. She has her heart set on Disneyland. It's like the dog days of summer in Los Angeles. She wants to go to Disneyland for her birthday. Not only does she want to go for uh, go to Disneyland on her birthday, but her birthday's on a weekend. So I got to go to Disneyland, height of summer, or at least like the, you know, the hellish depths of summer on a weekend. The humanity, sunscreen, the heat. That's all I got. I'm dreading that. That's the state of mind that I'm currently in. And, you know, it's funny because some people, adults, you know, they really, they love Disneyland. They can get into it. I'm a little freaked out by that. I don't mind people not hating Disneyland, but I'm a little freaked out by people uh, of a certain age who really get into it. 
and, and kind of uh, can't let go or something. It's like calm down a little bit. Just calm down. Take it down a notch. <laughs> it's like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a guy, and I'm going to forget his name, who does a podcast. This actually exists where he goes and uh, just like he has like a season pass. He lives in the area. And uh, he goes to Disneyland with a microphone and he just records like ambient Disney sounds, like what it sounds like at the park. And that's all he does. And then he plays it. And this podcast has a massive audience. It's a true story. Or at least I think, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I put massive in quotes. I'm not entirely sure how massive massive is, but there's a significant a number of people who like to listen to uh, ambient Disney park sounds. And the way that I know this is that I was at a, uh, it's like, well, I don't know. It's like some event called, uh, shit. What's it called? Stamp pop-up magazine. It's like in a theater, but you have uh, journalists reading like long form pieces, uh, like kind of like NPR type stuff, but with visuals and, you know, it's kind of a cool theater show. And there was a writer who, uh, wrote about this. And what's funny is that there was some raw audio of the show where like the host of the podcast is introducing it, or I guess he does some talking on it. And then it's like ambient Disney sounds, but, uh, he wound up falling in love with a woman at the park. Like they met at the park, they discovered a mutual adult obsession with all things Disney. They started a relationship, which then became part of the podcast. You know, they became kind of like a duo, kind of like Sonny and Cher. But then things started to unravel in their relationship and also like on the podcast. Which, uh, <laughs> I it is very amusing because it's like these people are like the happiest place on earth. And then you have these audio outtakes from the podcast where they're like bickering and you can just feel the rage, you know, which is kind of perfect. So anyway, that's all a long-winded way of explaining to you that I have to go to Disneyland against my will. It's my daughter's birthday. I got to suck it up. I'm not going to not go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put on a happy face. Just imagine me there this weekend, just, you know, wandering around, trying to make the best of it, standing in line, sweating. It's going to be fine. It's going to be great. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
My guest again is Amber Tamblin. Her new novel is called Any Man. It's available now from Harper Perennial. She's also got some books of poetry out there. Uh, one's called Dark Sparkler. Perhaps you've heard of it. She's got an essay collection in the works, and uh, she wouldn't tell me the name of it. It's top secret, but it's in the works. That's going to be announced sometime soon. So let's get to the conversation. This is Amber Tamblin, and her novel, one more time, is called Any Man. One of my writing mentors once told me that uh, I write my best when I, from a place of rage, um, and that's been true of me my entire life. Um, even being a poet, and, you know, as a teenage poet, and things I would write about. Well, you gotta um, be, you gotta be enraged if you're a teenage poet. Oh yeah, that's all you are. <laughs> but also just sort of writing about feminism, and you know, not really having a sense of humor about things back then. It was very, things were very serious to me. Um, the egregious behavior and cruelties that women had to um, had to deal with. And then I think as I got older, especially being a writer and a child actress, that is just um, a horrifying combination uh, of situations. And and I started to find a lot more uh, of a sense of humor in the cruelties of the world. Um, I feel like that that's a really good way to be able to access uh, people and bring them in and sort of um, uh, help them eat their vegetables, as it were. And so in thinking of that, any man was really that. It was like, how do I get, how do I get people to eat their vegetables? And by that I mean, how do I get people to feel again? And and how do I resensitize the conversations surrounding sexual assault, um, and get people who are sympathetic but not empathetic uh, necessarily to the experiences of others? Um, how do I get them to engage? And and how do we ultimately uh, get the world to start changing? It's not enough just to tell stories. I mean, that is a very important part of of everything that has happened in the last couple of years. But what else can we do? Um, and this came out of a frustration of that, um, of this idea of having a female serial rapist who attacks men. And, and Okay. And so you had to have been thinking explicitly, at least to some extent, about male readers. Yes, very much so. Like when you talk about resensitizing, mm -hmm. that applies to all of us because I think um, maybe to greater and lesser extents, but I think the deluge of bad news in uh, myriad forms does have this numbing effect after a while. And it's it like, absolutely does. And I, what I think, are we getting used to? I think, and unfortunately, you know, it's like nine out of 10 women have been sexually assaulted and one out of 10 men have been sexually assaulted. Nine All, out of 10 women. Yeah. Nine out of 10. But, but also only, I think it's something like 60 something percent of, uh, sexual assaults have been reported. So right. that leaves a very large margin of things that actually have never been reported. So those statistics, I would throw them out the window because we don't actually really know what the numbers are. Um, we do know that it is predominantly women. And, uh, and so because of that, um, that that gender has dominated the conversation, rightfully so, which is why the Me Too movement was so powerful and important. Um, and the breaking open of this locked door that had forever kept people silent and unable to talk about their experiences. Well, actually, I should rephrase that. Not to not that they weren't allowed to talk about it. It's that they, no one's been allowed to be taken seriously, and there have never been real consequences for those types of actions. So I think. Um, for me, a lot of reporters, it's been a, it's, it, this has been a fascinating experience promoting this book. Um, a lot of reporters and journalists and people have reiterated the same language to me. And it's as if they've read other articles and then they just say the same thing again. And they talk about, 
you know, quote unquote, uh, flipping the script or flipping the gender roles. And I always have to stop them and say, this is not about uh, misappropriating the pain of women. This is not about taking one pain away from this kind of person and giving it to another kind of person. There is no switching here. There is no reversing the gender roles. This is about an expansion of the conversation. And it is very troubling to me um, and disheartening that we're not able to have larger, more complex, complicated conversations about who exactly um, is being not only assaulted, but also, you know, the 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 more painful side aspect of that, which is the power dynamic and the power struggle, because at the base of it, all pervasive sexual violence comes from uh, a power imbalance. It, it, it ultimately is about power. And so um, so I look at that and I say, how can we have more complicated dialogues and conversations about those things, which should include the LGBTQ community, um, people of color, you know, anybody, men, it, it, we really need to have larger conversations. I just keep going back to that. And so that was the basis idea um, of this book. That was sort of the genesis of it. And then obviously, well, not obviously to you, to me, there are many um, conversations happening peripherally from that. There are the conversations of the indictment of our media system and a 24-hour news cycle, um, which I think is totally complicit and complacent in the harming of uh, survivors of sexual assault. Um, and then there's also the other conversation about the archetypes of women throughout. I mean, that's those, those are like two totally separate stories, but they both exist in the context of this book. Wow. Okay. And so when you talk about um, not misappropriating and you talk about expanding the conversation rather than removing and then assigning mm -hmm. to a different uh, group, I get that. But the truth is that um, there's more of a... Uh, I, I should say the the narrative that most people are getting about this sort of thing through the media is almost always gendered yes. male attacking female. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that the creative decision to whatever verb you want to use, flip it, change it, um, expand, mm -hmm. you know, is an interesting one. And I'm curious to know what the response in particular from men has been. And I know you had some early male readers, your husband being one of them, yeah. and you got some pretty surprising responses, like surprising to me anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't think that they would actually respond that way, but in my head, I was like, oh, I dare them to respond that way. And then they did. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, that, that's the nail on the head. Um, but just things of, of, uh, different people, different readers who had read it and, and sort of felt like perhaps certain parts of it were exaggerate, exaggerated and uh, felt a little over the top and maybe overwrought um, and thought, uh, oh, well, this isn't really how it is. This just seems like you've exaggerated it in a certain way. And I would then prove to them that it was not only not exaggerated, but one particular instance um, was a there's a section of the book with a sort of Nancy Grace type show uh, where these this Nancy Grace type character named Melissa Hope and these female panelists are ripping apart um, a couple of the victims, a couple of the men, uh, really in a really kind of crude um, uh, 
inhumane way, talking about their bodies. How is it possible to get raped if you have an erection? Why was he, you know, drunk with some random woman at a bar after work? I think all of the things that a lot of other people experience on a daily basis when they are, um, when they are, you know, uh, telling their stories about sexual assault. And uh, one part of that segment was a literal verbatim transcript that I took from a Nancy Grace show with a prosecutor and Nancy Grace talking about the Stanford rape trial and Brock Turner and the idea of, uh, you know, that if, if you don't want to get sexually assaulted, the best thing you can do is not drink alcohol. That's the best case scenario that women have. Um, men are never told just don't rape. You know, these are even pamphlets are handed out on <laughs> college You can manage campuses. it, just don't rape anyone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but that's really what, that's kind of the... Um, the code that's given at college campuses is that it is that that is what leads to sexual violence um, and that men really don't have to be accountable in a certain way. And um, and so when I anyway, when I showed him that uh, that this was a literal transcript, because he felt like um, he felt like it just was slightly over the top and that people didn't really talk that way in, in the way in which it was formatted. But I think there's a permanence when it's on the page, when it's not a tweet that you're just scrolling through on, you know, in your everyday life, or it's not the television blaring in the background of, you know, anybody on any of these news channels screaming about whatever they're screaming about. When you see it on the page, it kind of forces you to examine it in a certain way. And hopefully in a case like that, examine yourself as well. And the fact that you would think that that's not real, that is real. And that is the daily experience of most predominantly women, uh, but most people who have, you know, been sexually harassed or assaulted who might be discussed in the media at some point. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's been happening forever, Yeah, but it's also making me think about like the current moment that we're in, like historically and politically. And how many times I've had the conversation over the past couple of years with somebody where I've been like, if you wrote this down, like the times that we're living, like handed it to someone or tried to pitch it to someone, they'd be like, that's garbage. It's, you know, that would never happen or it's unbelievable. And yeah, the truth is stranger. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Uh, so, but, but like what you're talking about, uh, it's been, it happens constantly and women are not like historically believed when they come forward with these stories, which exacerbates the pain like tenfold. And it's got to be so mad. You know, it is so maddening to... Uh... But there's also a parallel gaslighting that I think is so rarely discussed. And the connection between, again, pervasive sexual violence and these other forms of uh, the abuses of power. And you could apply that statement that you just said to women, not just with sexual assault, but as far as you know, um, being hired or having their creative choices, uh, be believed or seen through or chosen, um, getting into boardrooms. Uh, I mean, there's so many angles to that idea of not being believed that go far beyond, um, violences of the body, but, but are violences of whole narratives, whole, um, whole concepts, whole perceptions. Well, so how do you, how do you internalize all this and carry it? I guess you make art, but I, like one of the things that strikes me in uh, reading you and reading about you is that you're willing to go to these dark places and stay there a while. And I mean, like this book was written while you're pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with, you know, my daughter. Yeah, yeah. So like your tolerance for the darkness in some ways is high, is like really high. And, uh, I drink bourbon. 
<laughs> I drink bourbon. I see an osteopath. Okay. What does get, the osteopath do? An osteopath works with um, myofascialer uh uh, sort of body manipulation and um, getting getting your body to move okay. and go back into its correct places. Right. Um, it's a form of physical therapy, I would say. Um, I've also been in therapy since I was a teenager. Okay. I'm very privileged to have that. You know, I know that that's not something that everyone is afforded, especially in the world we live in. Um, so I take advantage and I take uh, care of myself in those ways, in the ways that I can. I didn't always, but. You know, it's interesting. I don't think activism is a choice for women. Um, I remember one time when Dark Sparkler came out. This was my third book of poetry, which uh, looked at the lives and deaths of child star actresses. And I remember Kathleen Hanna came to this show that I did in New York with Yola Tango. We did, I did like a, a thing, a, a, like a, a reading of the book and Yola Tango created like a one hour song that That's never cool. stops. And I would just, and I read over it. Yeah, it was really great. We did it at housing works and then we did it out here at the Hollywood forever cemetery. And Kathleen came and I remember her, she sent me an email after she went there and she said, you know, telling me how much the, the evening moved her, but also that, um, she never felt like music was a choice for her, that that was not, it was an act of survival. And I had never heard anyone frame it that way before. And that's kind of what it feels like for me. The writing of this book, the the experiences of, of trying to find a new way to get people to see through the lens with which I see or with, it, with which anyone else sees, um, how do, how do I do that? And it doesn't feel like something that's just like, you know what, I'm just going to write about something dark today. It feels like if I don't do it, my sense of identity and self and the world I live in will die. Like it feels that, it feels that um, steep right now, especially in the world of Trump. You know, I think that this book really came out of that. And it was not just a response to to Donald Trump being elected. It was a, a response to... Um, feeling robbed of ever knowing what uh, a woman would be like as a president, a, a, a complex, um, extremely not perfect woman, but somebody who was definitely capable of doing the job and right. would have been great at it. Right. And this idea that women have to be absolutely perfect and brilliant and have the best ideas in order to you know, to receive anything and to, to be allowed to, to do anything, certainly hold office of that, of that level. And, um, yeah, the bar is way higher. The, like, bar is, the bar is way higher. And, and I mean, look at what these hypocritical Republicans who, like, you know, we all know, like, bent themselves in every direction uh, talking about how awful and immoral Bill Clinton was back in the day. Yeah. Mitch McConnell. I mean, like, you know, just like rending garments. And now they enable, like, behavior that two and a half years ago would have seemed like Twilight Zone bananas in the Oval Office. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, we're in a new world. They don't give a fuck, and I don't give a fuck. And that's kind of how I feel about my art now. And I hope it's polarizing and upsetting and piercing and damaging and damning and cruel and ugly and everything that women are not allowed to be. And uh, to me, I think that every... At least I, I can speak. I will speak on the women that, from the women that I know. Um, but I know that this is probably a feeling that many people who have been othered from their own livelihood have have felt. But that that is the way to move forward. The way to move forward is 
maybe not necessarily to be diplomatic in art, although I don't think that there was ever a time when it was like diplomatic art, but in seeing this now, in seeing this new world we live in, um, I feel like, especially as one who had a mother who was a council facilitator in schools here in Los Angeles, she works, you know, worked for Crossroads and um, has worked a lot. What does a council facilitator mean? So council is a program that came out of the Ojai Foundation uh, here in California, and it it's in schools all over the country. It's amazing. It gets kids to um, sit in circle together and basically, you know, pass a talking piece. It's a It's a... Uh, a resource, a way for them to learn how to listen. It's especially great for uh, teenagers, you know, when there's a lot of bullying, a lot of shaming, a lot of pain, um, and a way for them to sit and be quiet and receive and listen with sort of, they say, with an open heart. Um, uh, I think it's really powerful, and I was raised with that. These kinds of things are easy to, like, I think, uh, caricature and make fun of. It's like when people, I remember, like, sometimes people in politics will be like, we have a department of war. We need a department of peace. And everyone always snickers. And I'm always like, well, wait, that sounds good. <laughs> like, let's do a department of peace. Let's have like a uh, circle time where we learn how to listen and conflict resolve, you know. And So, but I always grew up being the listener and being the one to say, okay, how can we bring people together? And I know this might be sort of controversial to say, but I have no interest in coming together with other people right now who, you know, uh, believe that trans people shouldn't be in bathrooms and who believe that it's okay for a president to sit and exist in the way that he is and to treat women the way that he treats them and to you know in a world where people don't think police brutality against black communities or the disenfranchisement of black communities um all of it where they just think that that's fine or they just call that quote unquote identity politics and so much more i mean i could list a hundred things and i don't to me i think what's so important about what we're going through as a culture and a society in America is that everyone is drawing a line in the sand. People are drawing lines in the sand in the way that we haven't done before as far as talking about gender, about talking about race, talking about class and socioeconomic stature and saying, you know, this is what I will no longer tolerate. And I'm not asking you anymore to meet me in the middle. This is what I'm demanding to go forward. And I know that's really like a hostile place to come from, but I don't know how else to make things change. And art has to do the same thing. It has to be poking and upsetting in a certain way in order for us to have any kind of firing of the synapses that will help us think in a different way. Because we're so used to getting fed the same line through the same form of communication constantly that that we're not really realizing that we're talking to you know, we're not talking to everyone. We're not able to sort of get people again with that expanding of the conversation. So I, I, I feel like speaking for myself, I've drawn a line in the sand with where I stand and how I view the world and how I see it and certainly how I see the country and also my own, uh, you know, complacency within that, which I think is another whole other conversation too. But the idea of why has it taken me this long? to sort of sit in the place that I'm in and question the way in which I've held my own feminism or held my own regard um, while also saying that I'm inclusive and though I haven't been up until the last few years. Um, There's just a lot, there's a lot of things happening right now. And I think it's really important to make sure to address them all and to be open to them, but to not feel like you have to waver anymore and that you have to come together with people who are, have no interest in coming together with you. 
And I, I feel like that's always been a, um, a leftist issue is that we, we always, you know, say, well, we can understand, we can see where they're coming from. And that attitude of, you know, everything's sort of um, fucked is sort of how I feel as well. And just wanting to, to be free of it and to be able to talk about things that I feel like I haven't been able to talk about before. Okay. So a couple of things come to mind. I want to ask about the first being anger. Uh, you talk about all of your uh, creative work coming from a place of rage and upset, which I don't think is uncommon. And I think it also like can animate, um, activism in a good way. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things I've struggled with over the past couple of years is trying to delineate between righteous anger and acting from righteous anger and like the bad anger or mm. anger that overwhelms or anger that uh, invites cruelty and violence. Oh yeah. There's you, a lot of that right now. Yeah. And There's so it's like, it's, it feels dangerous to me because mm -hmm. I get it. I get wanting to draw a line and I get what you just said about maybe being a little too comfortable or um, like thinking you're inclusive, but actually not being as, as tuned in as you should be. Mm -hmm. I feel that, uh, you know, and um, I guess like trying to dial in, more empathetically and in a, in a realer way, a way that's tied to actual concrete action and activism on behalf of those who might not share the same privilege or the same, um, you know, comfort mm -hmm. that I do. But I'm also like really sensitive to this idea that when we speak and we act from a place of anger, it can incite violence and conflict and can perpetuate a cycle that is damaging to us all. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how do you parse it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, it's fine to feel angry at injustice and it's fine to act from that place and to try to make positive change using that as kind of like the fuel, but sometimes it can cloud you and sometimes it can, um, it can create deeper division. So two things I'll say about that. The first is twice you use the word trying. And I think that that's a really important word. And I think we have to try, even if that's all that we have and a lot of white people that's all they have sometimes is they just at least they're trying um i think i actually joked with roxanne gay about that once where i was like white people at least they're trying <laughs> um but some people don't even try they don't care and they don't they don't care to understand how they're failing and how they're you know not helping in the world um the second thing is i think when i talk about the anger I think that what I mean is it is important that it stays within the art that you're creating. And that could be anything. It could be whatever place in which you are um, expressing yourself in the world. I, I certainly never hope that that means inciting physical violence or anything uh, of that level. But I think that that is, that is where the, the conversation is going to be able to shift. And it already is shifting. It already has shifted. The fact that we're sitting here across from each other right now talking about this you know the fact that this is the main conversation that most people are having most wives are having with their husbands you know most families are having most workplaces are having that, that that everything the perception of what we are allowed to say and not allowed to say is shifting and that's really important to again expanding over if we cross over and look at the the, the parallel conversation which is not just about sexual assault but also about you know the abuses of power and looking at, you know, everything from the entertainment business all the way across to other industries and the, you know, the restaurant business and the tech business, um, looking at everything in the way in which 
people are treated, the way in which people are boxed out of the room and out of conversations where they should be, especially pertaining to their own narratives and their own living. And I think that we have to find a safe space for that rage to exist, for the anger to exist, especially for women, because women are always told that emotional thought doesn't matter right. and that rational thought is the only form of intelligence. She's hysterical, like that That's whole right. thing. That's right. Right. I think that's kind of what's what's so extraordinary about what Jill Soloway did with um, – uh, I, I seem to remember like the first few seasons of Transparent that there was this real sense of – uh, people could speak freely and openly on a set that they I think they had something called the soapbox or something like that. They had a literal thing where people could stand anybody, a crew member, and just sort of vent what they're going through. They could be frustrated. They could be emotional about it. That I process. should get one of those in here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm for that. I also know that that can create its own kind of, you know, intense working environment. But we've never had the freedom to have our emotions be counted. And that's what's so um, revolutionary about all of this is that the intellect that women have always carried in their core, in their cellular level bodies, which is our instinct, and I think many women confuse have been taught to confuse their instinct with anxiety, and we've been told like you know that this is this is just manifestations of anxiety and. And I think that it's in there. It's deep inside of us. And we really have not been able to listen to it and therefore nurture it. And that's kind of why um, it's important that we hold space for the anger in whatever fashion that comes. Outside of, of course, not creating physical violence, not harming other people in the process of that. Well, I'll tell you, like watching like uh, Me Too and Time's Up and whatever you want to, however you want to uh, tag this moment or whatever. Those been are having. two very different things, by the way. I know. I know. Okay. I know. But, but like <laughs> yeah. under the same big umbrella, right? Yes. So uh, one of the things that I've noticed in myself, if I'm being honest, is that I can feel discomfort around the volume of anger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's overwhelming to me. Yeah. You're like, Oh God, like, and it just keeps coming. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just like one after the other, after the other. And I think I finally come to a, a point where I'm like, Oh, like, it's just going to be like this for a while. Yeah, that's like, right. People have to like ventilate and like, you that have is to... exactly right. Yeah. From your mouth to like every paranoid witch hunt talking man. Who's like, this is going to be the new, you know, military state. This is what it's going to be like. Right, it's right. like, it's not. This is not let it let this happen. This has needed to happen since the Roman Empire. This is <laughs> this you is know, millennia. I this mean, for is, real. but I mean, it, it's just sorry that's true. It it's just something that has been been sitting there percolating for so long. And um, you know, a friend of mine uh, actually said he's the husband of uh, a friend of mine, um, and he put it to me the the best that I've heard so far, which is just. Uh, he was like, no, I, I get it. I see exactly what need. And this was maybe like a month after the Me Too movement had broken and, and all those things were going on. But uh, And he said, I get it. I, I totally see what needs to be done. Men just need to go sit down for a minute, step out of the way, let this happen, and then women will let us know when they've figured out what they want, and then we will support them in that effort. And that to me is like, you know, I, I understand on paper that is exactly what needs to happen, but frankly, more men, I think, uh, and, and women, especially like, you know, white feminism, but they need to police themselves. There needs to be this, the, this, the ending of this idea that 
we always have to go out and and fix things and explain to people what's wrong. And there has to be more of this uh, looking at our own selves and looking at people like ourselves and and the policing of our own actions and thoughts in order to change things and and, and in order to not put that emotional burden on other people. Are you running in 2020? <laughs> Would you ever run for office? I'm, I'm serious. I may someday. You but... may, because like, you know, you're obviously engaged, really smart, passionate about this stuff, able to articulate. <laughs> you have a public platform. It's not a crazy question. And I, and I know people always chuckle and like in the media, it's always like, are you running? And there's the little dance that people do where they say they might or they might not. But like, I actually think that part of the solution to the big mess that we're in politically is that we need good, conscientious, smart people to run and win. <laughs> And then perform well in office so that it becomes uh, like a position uh, of some degree of dignity again. Do you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like it's yeah. been so debased. So I'm kind of like, oh, wait, maybe you, you know? Well, I, yeah, I've, <laughs> I, I also think that one of the most powerful things, somebody recently asked me what gives me hope. Um, and I didn't have an answer for it, which is sad um, in the moment. But I think what I would have said is thinking about it, um, you know, these young kids, the March for Our Lives kids have, uh, are so inspirational to me, but also so are all of the unprecedented amount of women who ran, who said the same thing, you know, with the, when the Republicans were like, fuck them. And the rest of us were like, okay, well then fuck you. We're going to run and we're going to run, run in mass and we're going to win because we're better at this and because we actually do listen to people and because we actually do have that emotional uh, periphery and, and intelligence, like a deep-rooted way to listen and to create things in the way that a lot of this sort of stagnant, this male stagnancy that's been out there hasn't been able to change anything. And I get really prickly when I see this term of about a, a hashtag in social media that says a blue wave. Um, because it's not just a blue wave, it's a, it's a women's wave and it's really like women that are changing things and they need the respect for that, especially black women like Tirana Burke and women who have deserved the credit for making the, the moves and making things happen, um, in the way that frankly, cis predominantly white men have never been able to do. And it has become sort of this bureaucratic stuck a nightmare in this country. A lot of its problems have come from that. The idea that every solution, every law, every you know film, everything across every line that is dictated culture has come from men. Has come through the male gaze. White dudes. Yeah, and that needs to end. I'm not saying white dudes need to end, but I'm just saying, you know, it needs to be more equal. There needs to be room for everyone. Well, and white dudes will benefit. Uh, not only because the political environment will be healthier, but like it, it's it's a failure of perspective. I think it's a, it's an inertia when you're all in the same room and it's a bunch of white dudes who have enjoyed a bunch of privilege from birth and who are kind of self reinforcing one another and you know what I'm saying, mirroring one totally. another. It's not healthy. Yeah, and, and I frankly, personally, can't take one more uh, war movie. Like celebrating the Civil War, this you know some some part of World War Two masculine ritual. I j it's totally masculine ritual, and I'm done with it. And I think it's why things like Crazy Rich As Asians is so profoundly refreshing, and Black Panther, and and I I feel like that is the future of the film business, and it will be so great when that isn't when we're not just having to pick that out and say. 
here's here's the exception to the rule, you know, when this is the mainstay, when these type of movies, when we see that these voices are what enrich all of our lives and make the perspective and enrich the studios. Yeah. Once they tune into it, like, literally, oh, like, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying though. Like once they get a clue, like, Oh, there's an audience like that's starved for this. Yeah. And you've been denying them representation. Like that's an, that's one of the things that's uh, I'm late to awaken to hmm. is the power of representation in film because I've taken it for granted my whole life. Of course, I've always been up there. Of course, and like, oh, and then I started to think about it. I think it was right around the time that all the Black Panther media was, you know, that that I've had the thought before, but like I reconsidered it because there were many like think pieces about that sort of thing and yeah. how successful it was and. I just think about little kids who don't get to go to the movies and see themselves be superheroes or see people like them or who look like them. And that's like, that's not to be underestimated Mm -hmm. and uh, it's worth championing. And it's, it's not, you know, I can, um, snicker a little bit, or maybe snicker isn't the right word, but I can get frustrated with the superhero movies, Mm. you know, the constant, you know, but, uh, to a little kid, you know, who's going to the movies and is thrilled by that. Like I would never look down my nose at that experience. Like yeah. that's awesome. That's what it's for. Yeah. And there needs to be more of it. I hope, and I hope that these that's things... why, that's why like a wrinkle in time is so important to have a young, you know, black female protagonist, um, in the center of that film. Uh, what a huge deal that is for young black girls. What a huge, huge, important deal that is to right. see themselves in a giant film of that, of that nature. Um, and with a, you know, phenomenal director like that, like a star director, it just, it's, I think it is so important. It is also important, not just for them, but like for my white daughter to go see those films and to also see, you know, those kinds of people, um, displayed as stars right. and shown and given big platforms like that, because it, what it will do is it plants the early seed for her of equality, right. of seeing that she's equal to those people, right. um, as opposed to just seeing herself all the time. Uh, so I think that it's, it's, it, does, it does both things, and you're right, that it does benefit, it will ultimately benefit white people. It's good, yeah, and, and, like, and the businesses. <laughs> Everybody wins, it yeah. seems like, you know, yeah. but especially the people who have been underrepresented. Yeah. So I want to ask you, while we're kind of like in an entertainment vein, mm-hmm. about comedy. Okay. You're married to a comedian. Yeah. Okay. David Cross. Yeah. Um, and these times that we're living in are markedly unfunny mm-hmm. and it can get overwhelming. Like mm-hmm. you can just be like, God, it's so dark. And then like, it's also like this emotional discomfort. I talked a minute ago about being overwhelmed by the constant, um, barrage of bad news mm-hmm. and these floods of anger that are coming in from all directions and how like it gets emotionally uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think like for me, uh, I'm not a comedian, but like, I think, uh, I process things somewhat similarly. Like a lot of us do, like when things are uncomfortable, I'm always like looking for a joke or like a totally. way, a way to sort of As like, we started out this interview talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Getting sense of humors for the, for the worst, the worst of it. Yeah. But it's also, but it's like, it can be a minefield. Mm-hmm. Um, like, especially so like, it, it, you know, it can be easy to fuck up a joke in any delicate context, but I think especially right now, and especially with regard to, um, gender issues or like, you know, I I can feel myself feeling that, that discomfort that I've known, like, you know, in different situations my whole life, I can feel myself start to like, think of a way to like get out. But then I sort of freeze because I go, (laughs) this is dangerous. I don't know how to make any of this funny. And I could say the same thing in a million different situations under Trump. So like living with a comedian, 
uh, I'm sure having like a, a developed sense of, I'm assuming dark humor yourself, mm-hmm. like how do you navigate that? Well, it's really fascinating. I, I, have you seen, you've seen Hannah Gadsby's special, right? Nanette. Uh, Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched it uh, in bed and I fell asleep. Not okay, because I'm leaving. Of the, this interview's <laughs> over. I'm leaving. I'm leaving, It's sir. only because I just don't sleep enough. And like I, anything you put in front of me after the hour of 9 o'clock at night, it's like it's a crapshoot. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is such a profoundly brilliant special, um, both stand-up special, both because it it's kind of revolutionary as far as the way in which she talks about the importance of being real and of being honest about the pain. But even in the talking about that, you laugh at certain points because you can't help but do that. It's the way in which there is some form of catharsis. And, you know, David, my husband right now, is doing a big um, stand-up tour. Uh, we've been on tour together for two months. And um, in it, he there is a, a point in which he would – I don't want to give the whole thing away, but – where he imagines um, a presidential debate uh, with uh, Donald Trump and then the Democrats pick Ron Perlman as uh, as their um, nominee. And what ensues is pretty... Who's Ron Perlman, just for listeners? Oh, my God. I... Brad, I'm leaving. <laughs> no, no. I'm but... leaving. No. Like, you know, I'm, I'm... Um, Hellboy, you've seen him. He's yeah. like a giant actor. Right, right. With big hands. Yeah. And he can be very scary. Okay. Um but this idea of like a big, menacing, scary dude, um, and uh, and and in it, you know, the piece is pretty volatile that he does, but it's extremely cathartic. And I know for David, and and I think for a lot of, especially for men, they feel so out of control right now. Both with, especially for liberal men, they feel so out of control because they can't do anything about Donald Trump. And they've also been told to, like, sit down and shut up by the Me Too movement. So they're feeling frustration. You know, they're feeling, like, where do you direct this energy? But I don't I, know what you're talking about. <laughs> but they, but then some really amazing art comes out of that. The rage. And it goes back to that. One of the things that first attracted me to David was was his uh, politics and was his, his anger and his ability to channel effe- very effectively but also um, – critically and and uh and in a very potent manner you know the things that we aren't talking about and the things that we aren't allowed that we don't touch in contemporary comedy which is what hannah gadsby did too this idea of you know all right i'm not going to make um like jokes tonight about you know like a bad sex date that i went on or like whatever the typical cliche like you know bad like a sexting experience that they that it has meaning that there is a reason that they are on stage talking about what they're talking about um so it's like deconstructive yeah it's deconstructive but it's also it's some of sometimes it's the only way to touch some of the issues that are facing us today is to be able to do it through comedy because ultimately people can laugh. There can be like, especially if they're a really good comedian, like a, like a Hannah Gadsby, um, you know, you, you can find a way to make people both, uh, hear something that they're not ready to hear while also laughing after the fact. It's so hard to do when someone does yeah. that. Well, yeah, like that's artistry. Cause yeah. you're like, it's like juggling dynamite, like sticks of dynamite or yeah. something, you know, like it's, uh, but it's also like a huge relief because you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah, I think people especially, I mean, people always appreciate someone who can make them laugh, but especially when they're going into these places where they're saying what is often left unsaid and 
Well, a lot of David's fan base, too, are like, you know, uh, Run Ronnie Run fans and, um, you know, Southern people. Uh, and they come to one of his shows and they are not they are not prepared for the type of politics he's going to talk about. Um, I remember in his last special, uh, I think it was Make America Great Again. That was before Donald Trump won. Um, but he sort of and it was brilliant the way I think the way he set it up in that he he gets the audience to um, to really sympathize uh, with police officers only to turn it around at the end to make people realize how violent and cruel they are towards black people. And he coins this term blue lives matter of this idea of the perception of what, what they think of what police officers think. And it, and it really upsets white people in his audiences, which his audiences are predominantly white people, but he, you know, and there'll be lots of walkouts usually after a thing like that, or the, you know, the, the ways in which he bashes Trump in this current special that he has. Um, but, but it's that thought-provoking thing. When you're talking to your own audience, your own people, how do you infiltrate and how do you get them to see as well? So that it's not just about making other people see, but it's bettering ourselves, bettering our own communities so that we are um, we're also able to do, to do more and function better and see better. Um, and I think that, you know, the little that I know of comedy, and especially through David's world, it seems like... Uh, a lot of important work is being done through that right now. Does, okay, so he reads your book or your work <laughs> yeah. as like an early reader. Does he? Do you like vet or not vet? But does he do his routine for you? <laughs> and then like you kind of give feedback and say, you know what, you need to push harder on this, or you need to go there more. You know what I'm saying? Like I can see you. We don't do that, but um, but I will definitely go to his shows, and uh, you know. He, he remains one of my favorite comedians. He really does. And, um, but then that sometimes there'll be things that he says and I'm just like, you know, you need to cut that. You just look like a out of touch white dude. Okay. So this is what I want to talk about because <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I've had this conversation with people, um, about comedians in particular, whether it's Kathy Griffin or Michelle Wolf mm -hmm. or Bill Maher gets mm -hmm. like bagged on a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, like it's happened to David, I'm sure like, you know, like comedians are, get hit and I feel, and then I think about like an extreme case where like, uh, it's Michael Richards, right? Uh, the guy who played Kramer on Seinfeld lost it and started shouting the N word at like the laugh factory or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do with that? You know, like that's just, yeah. that's an extreme case. But, uh, in the, in the broader sense, it's about people getting up in front of other people and trying to make them laugh, trying to tell jokes, trying to like, not only like walk the line, but like push it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And as a creative person, I am especially permissive with comedians because that sort of, especially like a political comedian or a, yeah. a comedian who's working in a political vein, like you have to sort of give them some room. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, some of that room, I can feel it kind of contracting sometimes it's making boxing them in. It's making them har it harder for them to do their work without fear of reprisal or like social media condemnation and career shutdown or whatever you want to call it. Like it's a, it's a more dangerous time in some ways to be a comedian. I think on some levels it's good because they have to think through their act a little bit more. And that's exactly the point. And I think that the, the strongest satirists like David, who I think is one of the strongest, will know how to navigate that. And they won't be on a stage where the N-word just starts popping out of their mouth willy-nilly. Right. That to me is not strength. That to me is not a 
you know, a bright comedian working out their material, trying no, to that, find what they need to say. That's a guy. That's a guy who just lost his mind. Yeah, but also then probably had some like you know deeply rooted racist stuff that he hasn't processed anyway. Um, but I think that the ones that that you know, and that's the risk that you take. If you're in that business, if you are a comedian, the risk you take is that you are going to find and strike the right note in whatever joke you made. J- David is a joke writer. Like he's somebody who writes his work. It is thoroughly thought out. And then he will, of course, have runs within the, the context of that where he, you know, will go on a sort of uh, stream of conscious just thinking of what he's saying. But for the most part, his things are, are really fine tuned. So he's really thinking about what he's saying. And I think that satire can live in that space and say really effective, important things while not, you know, uh, harming people in the process of it. And, he, you know, look, he's had his own issues with that. And he's had to face some bad decisions that he's made in the past with making inappropriate racist jokes. Any comedian who's had a long career. Yeah. Any artist who has a long career, I'm sure, can go into their material over time, especially like written material, you know. Yeah. Painters, maybe, yeah. can look back and be like, it's all good. <laughs> but but uh, I feel but like... it's just important that they look at it. That they look That's, at it. That's, I think, the most important thing is the trying. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you go back to that of this... Of, did, did the experience change you or not? That hearing that this hurt somebody, that this was deeply offensive to somebody, someone that, that was that's your friend. Yeah. Does that change you? Does it change your perspective? Does it make you think twice about the way in which you're telling jokes and who you are telling those jokes, not only about, but to? Yeah. Who are you saying them to? And like, yeah, and I'm always like, you know, I think contrition is such a beautiful thing. Like when people apologize, like they've done wrong and they're like, God, I fucked that up. I'm so sorry. You know, and they say that like that moves me. Yeah. But I also feel like there's like this ritual of the public apology in the... I really agree with you. And I think it's really dangerous and scary, this idea that everything needs to be public and handled publicly in order for it to to be believed. Um, Because I think what it's going to do is create a culture where people are not really sorry. They don't really understand what they've done. Uh, They're not really interested in changing. They just know... You have your publicist, or if you don't have a publicist, you you know you know how to craft the you know politically correct statement uh, saying that you're sorry for what you did, but you right. haven't really learned anything. That is a big danger and scary. And it's also like if you do, like let's say you do something and it's like an honest fuck up, okay? And I'm, I'm like already like internally cringing using this as an example, but like um, when Bill Maher <laughs> dropped the N word on his show. Um, I felt like when I watched it, he made it a very ill-advised joke, but he was going for a joke on a live television show, reacting to a guy who just told him to come work in the fields or whatever. And as a fan of comedy, again, I'm like always like pretty permissive with comedians and like trying to like, oh, he's going for the joke, but like, oh, I'm like, you know, he should apologize for that. And he did, which he doesn't often do. Yeah. Um, but it was a short apology the next day. And then it was like, and then the apology is not good enough just for some, or they don't believe it. So, and that's just one example, but it's like the point that I'm trying to make is that like, I'm sympathetic sometimes to the, when we talk about the ritual of public apology to this notion that like, if you then go out there and apologize, it's just like, it's like another opportunity for everybody to say you're a piece of shit. And I don't know, I get like. My, a friend of mine who's a poet and an activist, amazing woman named Sonia Renee Taylor. I remember her once. I don't remember the context under which this happened, but 
I remember her once saying about something, you know, sometimes you just have to understand that people are going to be angry and not okay with what you've done and you have to let that be and you have to stop trying to fix it. And I think that that is really true of a situation like Bill Maher and and something as racist, cavalier and racist coming out of his mouth like that, again, is not a great comedian working out, you know, finding the right joke. The fact that it even came out of his mouth in the first place means he's got some deep-seated shit that he has to go work out. And and by the way, black people have been saying that about Bill Maher for a long, long time. Well, there's this a is lot not of, news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like... like but, but meaning he should understand that people... You don't get to just apologize and people are like, okay, well, he's sorry. It's fine now. And while I do think that the apology is important, is important is an important first step, what is the conversation that happens after that? And what what is the work... What is the work that Bill Maher is actively doing right. to try to figure out why he said that? That that's the joke he went to. That that is the first response. As That means that's sitting right at the top of his subconscious. That is right there in the front of his mind, if that's the first thing. Because as a comedian, you go for the instinct, but right? But I think, I think maybe the joke, just to play devil's advocate, because he's talking to a Republican senator who just told him he should come work in the fields. I think the punchline of the joke was the Republican. It wasn't black people. That's He was punching up. He wasn't punching down in the joke. Like... I'm not trying to defend the use of the word. It was a big mistake. He should apologize for it. It was an ill-advised joke. But like, there's nuance to these things, I guess, is my point. And it gets difficult. I don't think it was a punch up or down. I think it was like a punch directly in the faces of black people. I just, I don't, I don't think it's ever appropriate to reach in that direction. Right. And, and I, and I, frankly, even just as a white person, I get tired of, uh, of having to excuse it and having to say, well, that's how white male comedians need to work out their shit is by just allowing that to happen. And again, it goes back to what is the thing that made you do it in the first place? What is the thing you thought of right. that made it feel okay? That that is the first that is the first type of joke you want to use to work out, you know, that that's the first response joke. I'm, I'm, like, I'm doubting that there's been that kind of internal reflection. I could be wrong. There hasn't. I, I mean, it's, it's fact. You can just look at it because that is the system in which a Bill Maher has been able to exist and grow and become famous. And many men like him um, is to be able to just say whatever they want to say without any consequences or without ever having to think twice about what they say. And I like Bill. I mean, he's, you know, I'm friendly with him. I know him. Um, I don't know him. I, I'm just, I use him as an example just because he's like out there and he's pugnacious. He's been around forever. Yeah. He got fired from ABC. And he has a lot of important things to say. I mean, he really, really does. But that but that doesn't change the fact that he's he's got some serious racism that he hasn't dealt with. And he's not going to be able to deal with it unless he really absorbs that truth. You think he's a racist? Yeah, I do. Because, like, like, this is the thing. And by like, the way, that terrifies white people. Like, white people, as soon as they get accused of being racist, yeah. you know, they freak out. I myself have been racist. Every, I myself I think, have said things. We all have. Both everybody, of us have. But everybody of all, like, I think every human being is racist in some way. Um, or, like, has, like, some sort of weird feeling. Obviously, like, white people as the purveyors of this have been the greatest offenders. You know, I'm not trying to equate. Yeah, no, I hear I'm you. just saying that like as human beings, we all have like racial feelings of some kind, but like, I, do, do you, I, I just, I don't know. I guess like 
I think I, I think he's remains racist because he probably hasn't dealt with what it was that triggered his brain in that quick instance that made him use that word as the first idea of a joke that that was the first thing he thought to do in in a that his instinct that means he didn't have time to think about it that his instinct was to immediately use that word in a response joke and he has to figure out i think a way as most people do to just reflect on that i think one of the best things that louis ck ever did was to just go away i was going to say because he you haven't heard a peep from him he was just like and he said that in his statement he's like i'm gonna listen now i've been talking for a long time and he just went away. Yeah. I mean, who knows if he's listening, but I... <laughs> he's just like on his boat. Just... <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. Um, yeah. But, I, but I, do, I do at least say, you know, I, I, I'm happy. It makes me happy to think that that is what some people understand that they need to do. It's the listening factor. And it's the ability to say, okay, I caused a great amount of pain. In something that I did, I revealed something about myself yeah. um, that is probably inherently true, and I need to go study that for a minute. I don't think that the right thing for Bill Maher to do would be to, um, you know, put his show on hiatus and say like I'm going to go to you know racism therapy. <laughs> yeah, because like, <laughs> you know, which is, is what a lot of predators do. They're going to go to therapy, quote unquote. Right, but. but I do think that he should be including it more in the conversations of his show. Then he should find a way to or have do a like media line. where he like he kind of. I think like it would, it would be beneficial to me anyway to have him go out and do like. I mean, it would be any publicist would say, "Don't do this," but to go out and sort of like publicly turn himself inside out and like talk talk about it openly would be, I think, beneficial. I, I always said that uh, in a par- in a parallel conversation. I always said that about Chris Brown after he you know, uh, beat up Rihanna, I had always thought what a great opportunity to not just be sorry, but to actively be an example, a role model for other men to say, don't do this, that domestic violence, uh, which is such a pervasive problem around the world to be a real strong ally, uh, not only to women, but to be an example to other men and to find a way to do that work. And look, I know I'm projecting that on someone. I don't know him at all. I don't know his experience. I actually do. We're but we're buddies, and uh, um, he was just here. And I know he was young too when that happened. But I just I want there to be more, you know, accountability and self policing of looking at it and saying, don't just do it to give us the statement that you're star- that you're sorry. Um, but do the work. Do the work because, again, ultimately, it will benefit you. It will benefit you in the long run. It will make you a stronger, better person to really reflect on, you know, the way in which you could be harming other people or not helping. And not even know it. And not even know it. That's, it one, is... of, that's one of the like, worst parts of being a human being is that you can, you can devastate someone and not even know it. Yeah. Or you can say something or not say something. And, I mean, and not just in the context of race or gender or, like, you know, but in a relationship or I don't know, like there's a million ways it could happen, but like you would ne- and you never know. And again, I know that these are, <laughs> look, these are all, everything we've talked about today are huge, huge conversations that take time for, for things to shift. It won't happen overnight, but the fact that they are being talked about the fact that it was that big of a deal on air that he used the N-word in the way that he did. Um, 
the fact that that there is even space for for black people to be upset about that publicly and for that to matter and for there to be consequences um is so so important and it is the beginning i think of cultural shift especially in this country to be able to say Again, it goes back to the rage. It goes back to what people will not tolerate anymore. Cultural shift is not comfortable. No, it never is. It never has been. And it's the only way to do it. I mean, when the Me Too movement happened, there was so much. Oh, my God. I'm writing a book of essays right now, and I'm, I'm examining the, um, the history. What's of, it called? I can't say. Oh, you can't? <laughs> no, it's not. It'll be announced in like a couple weeks. Oh, okay. Um, but you it's don't want to break news on the other people podcast? <laughs> Normally I would, but I'd have to ask those people. But um, but I am examining the the term and the the origin of uh, um, innocent until proven guilty, and this idea of of uh, how that is used outside of a courtroom, you know, willy nilly by anybody for anything that they want. Um, and I, I think that there is just something really um, fascinating about uh, the fear, especially right after the Me Too movement happened, that things were going to go awry and go crazy and um, that it was going to become like, why wasn't there a sort of orderly way to do this, to to change the, to shift the inequality and the, the lack of representation. Um, I heard this by a lot of pretty powerful uh, men in, in Hollywood, especially. Um, and I was, you know, it's crazy to me because the only way in which you can change things is, is, is kind of by it being the Wild West. And that's a little bit of what we're in right now is we're reshaping um, whole principles and ideals and things we've had forever. And that's messy. And there's no way to not do it and be messy. Um, This is a form of war. That is what it is. And, you know, people just have to figure out what side they're on and who, whether, what space they're going to pick up arms. What was the, like the genesis of your political activism or political awakening can you point to a thing or a moment or a time in your life like where because you're so engaged like where does this all come from were your parents super political yeah my parents were super political um i was i grew up and was mentored by uh, jack hirschman who's the poet laureate of san francisco um and he's a, a very very political writer um uh, and has talked about, especially sort of the equality, uh, issues of equality, homelessness, um, imbalances of power, but also by uh, my writing mentor, Wanda Coleman, who's no longer with us, but she was, they called her, um, which I always felt like was like a slap in the face, the unofficial poet laureate of Los Angeles. Right. Um, one of the most extraordinary women who really wrote from a place of rage and knew how to uh, communicate um some of the cruelties that she had experienced in her life. And, um, uh, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. When you talk about like studying with Wanda or learning from her uh-huh. and also in your own creative work, working from a place of rage, can you be enraged while you're working or do you have to have like some emotional set distance from the, the, the hot point? Do you know what I'm saying? I think everyone's different. I think for me, part of the reason that I have, um, Another thing that I am writing about in this next book is just uh, looking at my um, uh, my central nervous system, which I think already was kind of shot from being a child actor and forcing myself to emote for a living. Um, I've you're, the, been... you're the second child actor writer I've had on this program, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Really? I had Ken Bauman on. Oh, okay. He was on The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Yeah. So anyway. Um, 
Yeah, but the central nervous system uh, is something that we don't ever pay attention to, I think, as human beings. We don't really nurture that or consider the damage that we do, um, uh, you know, on that level. We only we will only consider things damage if we've, like, broken an arm or we need to go to therapy, but there's there's n- nothing really to nurture the soul. What, and, what, what are these times doing to us? My <laughs> a constant, lot. My constant Twitter checking. Yeah. Like I was saying today to a friend of mine, I was like, as, as dismal as all of this is, as horrendous and as much as I wish it were not so, one thing I cannot deny about it is that it is an absolutely gripping narrative. Mm-hmm. That is very hard for me to turn away from. Like, what's going to happen next? How's this going to end? Like, I woke up this morning to see the news um, about Asia Argento. Uh, okay, yeah. And and that, I just was like, well, what parallel world am I in? What is happening? When the, when I read the news, it broke on Twitter. Of course, I was like flipping through. I saw that and I retweeted it. And above it, I just went 2018 because I was just like, I can't even. Like, I you know, yeah. like what like of all the twists. I think one of the things that's so fascinating to me, not even fascinating, that's just not the right word. That's just me regurgitating language. It's not fascinating. It's um, very apparent and very clear is this cyclical nature of pain and and this idea that um, abused people go out and abuse people. And there's so much that needs to be talked about in regards to that and and why these things keep happening and why um, trauma begets trauma in a certain way. You know, there's that term, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, and I really look at it, this is particularly heartbreaking and sad just because of all the circumstances um, connected to it and also the, the, time, um, uh, the time frame in which she actually paid off uh, the gentleman, um, who accused her, um, which happened, I think like the month after the Me Too movement broke. Right. Again, I think it's going to take all of us. Um, it's going to take a lot of people not checking out. Um, a lot of people putting the brakes on the immediate, um, fury of it and really seeing how we can change things, not just incrementally, but on a large scale, which we can do if everyone is working together. And people don't work well together oftentimes. And certainly even, you know, and and I mean that to say like men as well, they don't really work. They were not very helpful in the, when the Me Too movement first broke. And there was this real paranoia that, Um, of the witch hunts and all of those things. And I think it's so important that we remember that this is a long haul and a long journey. And we have to be, um, you know, we have to practice patience and uh, kindness where we can, but to never waver. And we have to stand firm in the things that we believe in, even if that is uncomfortable, even if that does create um, a total disappointment because somebody we thought we knew um, suddenly turns out to be predatory or have done something bad. Um, And to examine that and to say, we have to change it. The way we can change it is to continue the storytelling, to continue being able to have safe spaces in which we can talk about it. And, and ultimately, I mean, there's, this is a whole other conversation, which I am not prepared to have because I just, I don't know enough about it, but, but this does come down to People need support. They need emotional and and mental health support, financially and otherwise. And people like Asia should have been able to have, hopefully, a space, or even Harvey, before he did everything that he did, Harvey Weinstein, 
to have space to try to fix what was wrong with them before it happened. You have to have a willing, the person has to be willing to do the work. They have to be willing to do the work, but also they have to be able to afford to do the work. And this country doesn't make it possible for people, especially again, I'll go back to it. The LGBTQ community, you know, people of color, they don't have, because of the, the economic imbalance, they don't get the same privileges that a lot of white people do in order to take care of themselves. That's right. And it's fucking unfair. Yeah. And so when we look at the, all the imbalance, the cumulative imbalance, it creates this sort of vortex of cruelty and pain and triggered trauma that goes over and over in a loop. And my thought is always, how do we get out of the loop? How do we get out of the loop and how do we hold ourselves responsible if each of us held the responsibility that you know that one other person takes usually again a person of color lgbtq it's always in those communities that they take to hold a million white people accountable and responsible um if we flipped that and those million people each held it on themselves we would have probably a healthier system we would be able to look uh and i know that a lot of that needs to be taught because you know if you are born into that you have a hard time seeing but that's been my work it always has been my work i've always and i've fucked up repeatedly and you know hope not to but i know that that is part of my whiteness it's part of the experience but it is important i think that each of us takes that on and is at least looking at it at least doing everything that we can within our current power to to change it so last thing I'm going to ask you, unrelated to um, the train of thought we've been on, but I, I, I want to get to it before you go, is... I don't know if there's going to be a Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants <laughs> movie 3. I just don't. I, Brad, I don't have an answer for you. You can't leave me hanging like that. Um, the writing of your novel, mm-hmm. like I, this interests me personally, because you were working on it, um, at least uh, from what I was reading, like you were working on it in a certain vein and kind of trying to generate a novel as you understood novels were supposed to mm-hmm. be like, uh, this is how a novel looks. This is how it sounds. This is how it's structured. This is how it appears on the page. And it sort of went dead for you. Yeah. So can did. you talk about that a little bit and the creative decision-making processes that you went through to actually get it into the form that it's in now? So the book for me is in some of the forms of prose and, um, and also straight, straightforward narrative fiction. Um, but it is, slightly experimental in that way. And I think the poet in me was bored with the traditional um, narrative writing. That was boring, a boring way to enter into the emotional lives of these um, survivors. And, uh, and I also felt like it could just allow me to create more mythology around the antagonist, this woman known as Maud, who does all these um, terrible things to men. Uh, But to really, to really, um, capitalize on the the uh, inhumane ways in which women are described um, and uh, sort of used and cruelly talk, talked about, um, it was important for me to create uh, an antagonist that felt like this scary apparition. And the poetic form was the way in which I could do that. Um, for me, just as a reader, I've always gravitated towards writers who write like that. Anne Carson, for instance, is a writer I really love. I just had Maggie Nelson in here. She does Maggie's that. amazing. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Yeah. She's so, she's so good. She's scary. Sometimes I read her books and I'm like, why is anyone writing? What's <laughs> right. the point? Done. Right. Everyone quit. <laughs> Everyone quit. 
Um, I actually read her book, uh, The Art of Cruelty, in some of the studying that I did for Any Man. For oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I sense a little bit of, uh, like, that. there's a little crossover between the two of you, like, in the way that you're presenting. That's a compliment. That is a compliment. <laughs> I'll take it as one. <laughs> um, well, it's been so fun talking to you. Likewise. You have, uh, you have a lot to say, and um, you're a very strong voice for a lot of issues that matter, so I hope you keep talking. I hope I listen some more. I think I'm, I think yeah. I'm done talking. And well, I'm I mean, I get it. Ready to listen some more. I get it, but or at least, at least, uh, and I, I get what you're saying. That's a, a there's humility in that, and I understand. But like, I just mean from a fundamental place of um, being tapped out. Yeah, oh, really? Like okay. haven't you know of of feeling like I need to absorb more, and it's been a real joy watching other people's journeys, um, and being able to support and amplify friends and you know uh people to just say this is great these people here's the other here's here's friends or peers that are doing really hard important work right now and to just be able to to amplify and or listen to that for a change right um the listening is what i always return to after i've talked too much like circle time or whatever yes okay well it's a pleasure to meet you (laughs) it's really nice to meet you too Okay, that's Amber Tamlin. She is uh, an actor, a writer. I mean, I don't even know how to sequence this. I should say she's a writer, she's an activist, and she's an actor. Is that the right way? Anyway, she's multi-talented and uh, a terrific conversationalist and a terrific uh, novelist. Her new book is called Any Man. It's available from Harper Perennial. You can find her online at amtam.com. A-M-T-A-M. Dot com. She's on Twitter. What's her Twitter handle? I think it's just Amber Tamblin. Do I need to explain this to you? I do this every week. <laughs> you can track people down, right? You know how Google works, but... I will verify it is Amber Tamblin. At Amber Tamblin is her Twitter feed. The book, one more time, is called Any Man. It's a novel. Harper Perennial. Go get your copy. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. Don't forget, this podcast has its own official app, the Other People app. Go get it. It's available where apps are available. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So I'm going to go to Disneyland, and I'm just not going to be a dick about it, you know? I'm not going to complain. I'm going to, it's not about me. It's about my daughter. It's like her, I'm not going to ruin her Disney magic on her birthday. Can't do that. Parenthood is about sacrifice. I just wish I could get her to go on Space Mountain. Like, she's not ready yet. That's the one ride I like. Like, maybe I should try to push her into it. It's a terrifier. Ruin her birthday. It's PTSD. It's not that scary. It's just, you know... It goes fast. It's in the dark. I get it. Gotta be ready for those kinds of things. I worry about the plushies. You know, like the people who wear the costumes. Are those things air-conditioned? Like, what 
gotta be miserable. And like, what do those things smell like on the inside? These are the kinds of thoughts that go through my head at Disneyland. Anyway, I'm feeling good. Feeling good. I have a little bell right in front of me. Look at this. 